This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Michael Horn, joined by my co-host, Jeff Salingo, and uh, really excited for uh, today's uh, conversation. We have Josh Goodman, an associate professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, studying human capital and education policy. And uh, Josh, welcome to the show. A question, Josh, that we love to ask our guests when they come in is, how did they get how did you get interested and started in higher education more generally? But in your case, coming from the discipline that you did, yeah. uh, it seems like more and more professors bring bring that background right now. And so how did, how did you get into that? Yeah. So um, not to make it too long a story, but I was a physics major as an undergraduate. Couldn't figure out I what to do. See, I didn't see that coming. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't figure out what to do with my life afterwards. Got lucky, won a scholarship to go to Cambridge University for a year to study anything I wanted. And the only other thing that interested me was education policy. I'd always been very interested actually in teaching. I'd loved being a teaching assistant in college, and I'd always been interested in um, sort of debates about education policy. When I did this degree where I studied with sociologists, which was for me a big shift because it was words instead of numbers, uh, came back to the U.S., was a high school math teacher for a couple of years, uh, and then realized that I wanted to do something that took all the math skills that I learned as a physics major and that I felt like were sort of part of the value that I brought to the world, but apply it to questions that I cared about. And and the questions really were about education policy broadly. So uh, I went and did an economics degree because that felt like the intersection of sort of mathematical thinking, but applied to questions that I cared about. And uh, and higher ed turned out to be a a great place to do work because there's just increasing amounts of rich data to do this work on. And, and, you know, that's that's where our skills come into play. Uh, So one of those pieces of of data, you published a study recently in in August uh, looking at data on millions of SAT takers um, and analyze the outcomes of students that did and did not retake the test. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated by um, the SAT and the ACT because I'm in the middle of writing a new book on college admissions and Mm. I'm inside uh, the admissions process at three universities, um, Emory, Davidson, so small liberal arts college, big private, selective, and then University of Washington, uh, big public. And I'm really interested in how they're using um, the ACT and SAT standardized tests um, in admissions. But tell us what you found, and then I want to dig a little deeper on on, on that research. Yeah, so this was, this was prompted by, um, there have been a series of research papers looking at what happens when states mandate the SAT or the ACT as part of their accountability systems. And what it turns out that does is it brings a whole bunch of students into the test-taking population who never would have taken the test before, and some of them end up going to college who wouldn't have otherwise. And so there was all this evidence that getting a kid who wasn't going to take to take it once did something for them. And we wanted to say, well, there's this other thing that people do, which is they take it once and then they take it again. And then sometimes they even take it again. Again and again and again. Again and again. And so um, the College Board was um, very generous, was willing to share uh, uh, their internal data with uh, a few of us researchers. And the first thing we noticed was in their data, there's a huge income disparity in who retakes the SAT. So high-income kids, much more likely than low-income kids to retake. Uh, And that immediately tells us that there's you know, if high income kids are doing something, almost certainly there's a reason that they're doing it because it's giving them some advantage. And so um, what we set out to do was study the question of does retaining the SAT actually help you go to college, get into college, go to college, go to a better college? And um, without getting into the details too much, the answer is yes. It does seem like uh, retaking makes a big difference to kids' uh, admissions-relevant SAT scores, and that in turn seems to get them into colleges that, you know, better colleges than they would have otherwise gotten into. And and let me just say that the I think the fact that was so striking to us, the question we started with is only about half of students who take the SAT retake it, 
And that struck us as really surprising because it turns out when you look at what colleges say they do with SAT scores for admissions, they super score them. 80% yeah. of them say they will use Right, the, the maximum best, score yeah. that a student gets it could be you know it could be the maximum score you get in one sitting yeah. or the majority of them Across actually sittings, right. do yeah. like we'll yeah. take yeah. your best math and your best reading and put them together and so it basically cannot hurt you and can only help you to retake the SAT and yet half of students aren't doing it. And the other thing, uh, Josh, is that I think that sometimes people forget that, you know, these are high school students taking it. Their brains are just consistently growing over time. And one of the things I've been interested in around um, kind of early decision, the increase in early decision at colleges, especially very selective colleges and universities, is that for many students, they kind of have to be done with their testing Mm -hmm. in their junior year of high school, right? So did you also see that um, when you start retaking it, you're going to take it over a period of growth in your own kind of educational ability, right? So that's another reason to to take it again, because in six months, you could grow a lot in terms of your your abilities. So I think that's absolutely true. So I think, first of all, you can just learn by taking the test once what it is like to take the test. So separate from even getting smarter, you right. just experience get some taking. Exactly. Yeah. There's almost certainly some growth going on because you're studying in school that may give you more time to study out of school for the exam. And let me just say that the timing of the test turns out to be this really interesting thing where there again, there are huge disparities by income and race and ethnicity in when people first take the SAT. So higher income kids first take the SAT usually in March or May or June of their junior year. So if it doesn't go well, come the fall of senior year, September, October, they take it again and it's fine. It's in time for admissions. There are a lot of low income students and underrepresented minority students who first take the SAT in senior year, which means that they don't even have time to retake necessarily before college admissions deadlines happen. And so we found that actually the timing of that first take is the variable that most explains whether a kid will try to retake the exam again, more so than so, income. Or and and do most states that require this require it early enough so that there is time to retake? Or? That is a great question. Okay. And I don't know the answer okay. to that. Um, th- those requirements kicked in a little a little bit too recently for us to do a lot with them in our data. But okay. yeah. But, it, but it's fascinating also. So that means high schools, I mean, my recollection of high school, and it's, it w- was a while ago, <laughs> but uh, uh, was that the school was sort of, you know, as culturally, if you will, or they were preparing us to take it in that junior year. That sounds like that's not the case think, at a lot of these schools that low-income students attend. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think, yeah, whether it's culture or just lack of information, uh, I will say one of the things we did for this paper is we did a little bit of um, letting, you know, Google autocomplete fun, you know, studies. This is what I call sociology on the cheap. <laughs> you know, economists don't often talk to people, but we go on computers to see what people in total are talking about. And so if you type in things like retake the SAT, the kind of Google autocompletes you get are can I retake the SAT? So there are lots of students who don't, who just know. don't know. They also, You also get things like, is retaking the SAT bad? Bad, sure. Um, and it turns out when I've presented this research in front of audiences, I've had some people, particularly the older people who, for whom you know they took the SAT farther back in time, say explicitly that they were told that retaking would look bad for their college applications because it's maybe a sign of weakness. Whereas now, you know, it seems to me that the advice should be you know, completely the opposite, that as long as colleges actually do what they say they're doing, retaking is, is a good idea. Josh, where does, this, uh, where does this research fit in with the big test optional movement that's happening in, in colleges and universities? Of course, the University of Chicago, probably the most selective place this uh, past summer that uh, went to a test optional. How does that fit in with this uh, kind of movement? Yeah, I think, I think the really broad question this all raises is, you know, what do we want colleges selecting students on the basis of? And and in particular, if we're worried about access and equity issues, 
Uh, do we think that tests like the SAT in the end are barriers to that? Or, but you know, as an economist, I always want to say you got to think about what the alternative is. So if Chicago's not judging people by SATs, what are they judging? What are they judging? You know, is it the list of extracurriculars or right, the rest which of the would also CV? Advantage. Yep. Which, which in some ways may be easier for higher income students to get an advantage on the SAT. You know, f- and and I'm not someone who's out here shilling for yep. the College Board, but you know, for all its flaws. You know, it's a fairly straightforward thing. Uh, yeah, it's you know, we can argue about whether the SAT should make it e- the College Board should make it easier for students to uh, take the exam in terms of uh, lowering the fees even more for low income students, making it easier for them to do that. But um, but I think there's an argument to be made that that uh, it's not clear whether going test optional actually is something that improves equity and access. Well, and they did a lot also by with the Khan Academy to give free test prep away to low income students, so that uh, somewhat leveling the playing field from the high price tutors that high income students uh, get. Did that make a difference on, on on this question? You know, I'd love to know the answer to that. Oh. I don't yet know the answer. Um, uh, you know, the one thing that comes up when I give this talk, uh, you can look at how other countries do standardized testing. And the U.S. is somewhat unusual in that we give multiple chances. You know, the SAT is offered seven times a year. We could move to a, uh, you know, a system like China's or Brazil's where you get one shot and, and that's it. And if, and if it doesn't go well, you know, either you're off on a different track for the rest of your life or you have to take a year off right, for to study, study yeah. which, you know, has it's not clear that that's, you know, that world is the world you want to move to. No, I mean, it, dri- <laughs> it, it, it drives a, a, a different type of after school studying uh, culture right. uh, till uh, all hours of the night, quite literally in places like China and Korea and so forth. Uh, so, so switching gears a little bit, because there's another piece of research you've done yeah. that has gotten uh, both a lot of attention and, and fascinating around the Georgia uh, Institute of Technology. Technologies, MOOC uh, powered, if you will, uh, uh, degree. And, and just for, for folks that aren't familiar with that research, uh, can you describe what you found there and, and what, what you were trying to look at when you came into it? Yeah, about five or six years ago, Georgia Tech, which has a top 10 computer science department and a very prestigious in-person master's degree program uh, that costs about $45,000, takes a year to do, uh, announced that they were going to create a fully online pathway to that same degree that students would do part-time, but for only about $7,000 in total. And it would lead to literally the same degree, not a degree that had the word online in it. They said, we will teach you exactly the same stuff and certify that you, with this online learning, have a, you know, know as much as our in-person students do. And so um, people were surprised when this happened, uh, in part because all the initial excitement about MOOCs radically disrupting higher education had died down a bit. People were sort of looking for uh, sort of positive news, let's say. And and there were concerns, you know, why hadn't other universities done this? Well, why wouldn't this cannibalize the in-person revenue stream that Georgia Tech sure. had set up with its traditional program? And so what we found in this paper, I think, was two interesting facts. One is that the set of students enrolling in the online pathway to this degree was basically entirely different from the in-person set of students. So the in-person students that Georgia Tech was getting were basically straight out of college, very heavily uh, foreign-born, although not entirely, a lot from India and China. Um, What the the online program was attracting was mid-career Americans. The average age of the online folks, applicants, was something like 34, 35, a decade older than the in-person folks. And it makes complete sense that, you know, who does online education appeal to most? In general, I was going to say it's typically your 35-year-old. Exactly. People who have a home, a job, family, they're not going to be mobile or be able to take a year or two off to, to study. And so one thing I think Georgia Tech figured out was how to, in some sense, separate its customer markets, which was, I think, very clever. So that was that was interesting just from a descriptive who's 
who is this appealing to? And then what what we really set out to study was for these mid-career Americans, if if they get if they didn't get into Georgia Tech when they applied, what were they doing otherwise? And the answer was basically nothing. nothing. It was either this or low stay cost, where they are. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, it was either this low cost, you know, pretty prestigious option or basically nothing else in the existing marketplace seemed to appeal to them. They were doing little bits and pieces of online training, but nothing that in total added up to the amount of training that was going on through this program. So, uh, you know, the, I think that the real amazing punchline that we came up with is that because Georgia Tech was basically creating new master's degrees, that something like, that Georgia Tech is now responsible for increasing the number of American master's degrees in computer science by something like 10%. That one program is producing... 10% of American master's degrees. So, so it speaks to something different, actually, which I've been fascinated with, which was the, is, is this supply-demand imbalance in computer science uh, trained, let's not say even master's students, just mm-hmm. trained people in the country relative to the jobs that are out there for them. We've seen uh, boot camps come into this space and fill a bunch of that as well, but still the demand and supply are out of whack with each other. Uh, and so the cannibalization question almost seems secondary. Why aren't other universities doing this? Or, or do you think they'll take your research and actually now get into it? So this is a great question. I, I, the economist in me says there's at least one thing that would make me hesitate if I were another university, and that's the following. According to Georgia Tech, it costs them something like two to $300,000 per course to create a, a, high, a high quality online course that they felt would do what they needed to do pedagogically to make this degree meaningful. So in total, I think they said, you know, they, they needed a startup grant of something like $4 million that I think was given by, by AT&T, AT&T yep. as a corporate partner. And so um, that kind of cost structure, that huge upfront investment only works if you then can scale the program it. to a place where, you know, because the marginal cost of adding another student is close to zero. Mm-hmm. So you have to distribute those fixed costs over all those students. So if I'm the second mover in that space, I think things are a lot harder because Georgia Tech is already there. And, and at some point, I, I don't know how much space there is. I think there are real economies of scale here. And we know that in markets with economies of scale, they're sort of There's natural winners. monopolies. Yep. Yeah. So I don't so, know. So, Josh, what um, uh, you talked about uh, in the beginning, the, the data in, in higher education. What are some of the other questions that you um, maybe give us a little preview of some research you're working on or, or not? But uh, what, what are some of the other questions that you think need to be answered in higher ed or that you're interested in pursuing given the data that's out there? Yeah, I'll say, you know, um, related to this online education research, um, you know, our goal with this Georgia Tech paper at first was just to say, what is this doing in terms of the education people are getting? Is it substituting for other things or adding to it? But I think there are interesting longer term questions about what are the returns to these online degrees? Um, It's a little early to answer those questions because Georgia Tech only started graduating people a couple of years ago. But we're working with them to actually find out what the earnings trajectories of their applicants and enrolled students were. So I'm hoping in a year or two, we might be able to shed some light on whether this degree is actually valued by the labor market. Um, I think there's also this fascinating rise of micro-credentials um, that that no one has yet, I mean, again, these are very new, so it's early days, but that no one has really got a clear sense of, you know, if I go online and do one course through... Uh, you know, I get, you know, a little certificate that I learned from one course or, you know, a four, four course sort of micro masters. What do employers make of that? Do they take those things seriously? Um, and so it feels to me like uh, that's a that's a frontier that would be nice to to head down. And I'm, I 
I'm, I'm hopeful that we've found some research partners who have an interest in answering those questions as well. I want to ask you about uh, dissemination of of your research. You know, when I when I started covering higher education uh, 20 plus years ago, um, you know, you'd have to wait for the journal articles to come out. You'd have to call up the researcher. They'd call you back three days later, things like that, right? You're part of kind of a new era of of, of researchers that are is very active, for example, on social media. Uh, I love when you're coming out with research, you do these great tweet storms, kind of explaining your research in, in layman's terms. Is that a, now a part of, of how you think about dissemination of, of research, you and others, I guess, other colleagues? Yeah, research? I think when, early on when I was a faculty member, I didn't, I sort of had the opinion, well, if you do good research, people will just find it, right? And that's, that's not how the world works. You have to do some self-promotion. And I also think you have to be careful as a faculty member, our immediate uh, professional incentives are to get this stuff published in journals and get the respect of our academic peers because when it comes time for tenure, that depends entirely on what other professors know about your peer-reviewed published research. But but the ac- writing for other academics is not often super helpful for practitioners and people who want to disseminate this stuff into the world of policy and practice. And so I found that, frankly, that Twitter is actually a great place that sort of forces me to come up with the shorter you know, so what version of the paper that doesn't necessarily involve some of the details that I actually do make the work better, but can be buried in an appendix somewhere. And, and what's your Twitter handle again? At uh, Joshua S. Goodman. Okay, great. So everyone follow. Should, everyone <laughs> should follow. Uh, Josh and Josh, thank you very much for joining us on, on Future You and, and talking a little bit about your research. We're looking forward to, to what's coming next, and we'll be back after this break. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. Welcome back to Future You. Um, Michael Horn here and and Jeff, uh, coming off a great conversation with uh, Josh Goodman, uh, a lot of things to pick apart there, but I'm curious what jumped out to you most about his research on the SAT, particularly as you're spending a lot of time right now with admissions offices at, at, at uh, major universities. Well, as he talked about it, kind of this idea of retaking the SAT and how it really does help you um, in certain cases in terms of, of admissions. And, and I'm really interested, there's been a, a real big push on early decision at very selective colleges. Uh, Nick Anderson at the Washington Post did a big piece uh, about a week or two ago on, on the gr- huge growth. Uh, in many ways, early decision has become the new regular decision. Yeah. Uh, as students kind of understand that that's the way to kind of gain the quick, quick question, by the way, because it, it feels like early decision is one of these things that goes in fads. And, and is, is that true or is it actually largely, you know, increase like is the line of, of early decision increasing or is it cyclical? Uh, it, it, no, it's definitely growing. OK, um, uh, I haven't gone back enough in history to know if it's cyclical, but okay. uh, but it's definitely growing. But it what's happening now is that while the overall volume is growing, 
colleges still don't want to take more than like half their class mm -hmm. uh, early. So what's happening now is that the acceptance rate is dropping. Uh, and, and most students think that that's an easier way to get in. And so what this requires, though, is essentially because most ED uh, or EA uh, uh uh, deadlines are November 1, is it really requires you to essentially complete your college search in your junior year, but to get your testing done in your junior year uh, or at the very early summer. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, this, this is the uh, Michael on the couch moment, but yeah. I remember taking the SAT junior year and then I retook it in, I guess, September or October, whatever yeah. the earliest way, yeah. period was. And my application for Yale was due probably end of October. And I remember, I think I sent the scores, you know, as a as a supplemental information right. for the committee or something. Right, like and, that. and one of the things that you know we were talking to Josh about is that there's a, a tremendous amount of growth in the teenage brain, uh, you know, every month yeah. uh, of high school. And so the fact that you're trying to like stuff all this testing early on uh, to get for these ED applications, um, I, I think ED really needs to be rethought. Um, you know, it's incredibly unfair to uh, low to income. low income students in particular, and also just the students who really don't know. I, I mean, there's not a, a lot of research on, on retention, for example, of, of early decision students. Because what one thing that I found interesting, I'm, I'm interviewing a lot of seniors for this book, and, and many of them in mid-October, so two weeks before the applications are due, said, I'm going ED somewhere, I just don't know where. And I said, hmm, isn't the purpose of ED is like it's your dream school, right? You really want to go there. And what they were really trying to do is just game the system, game the right? System to they have were the trying best to figure shot. out the best shot of, of getting in. The second thing that I, I found interesting is 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 the use of SAT in admissions. Uh, you know, so I'm I'm kind of embedded in the admissions process at, uh, at Emory, you know, a large private, at Davidson, a small liberal arts college, and at the University of Washington, you know, big public. And it's just really interesting in how they use standardized test scores. And, you know, the best predictor we know of, of college success is really grades, grades and, and, right. and not high test school scored. curriculum yeah. uh, and not test scores, right? So, you know, test, as somebody said, uh, you know, college is four years. We want to look at four years of work, not four hours of work, right. uh, which the SAT is. And so, um, you know, to me, what the way I've seen the SAT used, even in schools that are not, op so these are schools that are not SAT optional, is it's kind of a check-in, right? Like, well, we're kind of unsure of this student what are his scores, right? Um, but the best predictor is uh, is our, our our grades, and and so the question I have is that you know what is the future of of standardized tests? Uh, you know we've been seeing a huge increase in um, in test optional schools. Uh, you know University of Chicago being the most recent one last summer. So I'm kind of curious. You know we've we've had for um, ages for really a generation. The two pillars of college admissions have been grades on one hand and test scores on the other. So more schools go and test optional. And I think there's a lot of questions about grades, right? Grade inflation is up. And so if we don't assess students on those two things or we don't trust those two things, how should we assess them? So I'm curious, Does do you see that behavior being different depending on the type of university? And what I mean by that is uh, at an elite university, Davidson being a great example, yep. small, uh, where they, I think they spend a lot of time thinking about the qualitative nature of the application and so forth, compared to a large public, say, where they're getting, you know, lots Tens of volume of and of therefore they, it, it, numerical assessment of someone may be more important. Does that differ or, or not? It, that's a misperception on my part. It, it, there, there are more like cutoffs uh, at, at bigger publics um, than at smaller privates where they have a lot more flexibility. Mm -hmm. um, but, but there are, un unfortunately now, I think, 
uh, you know, it's not as easy. I, I was recently looking at the 1950, Michael Crow, the president of ASU, gave me the 1950 admission standards for the University of California system. Of course he did. Of yeah. course he did, right? And so, but it lays it out in very stark terms, like what you need to get in. And if you mm-hmm. do this, you get in. We you can't do that anymore. Like, you know, even when we were applying, right, you could look at the, the ranges and you could say, okay, if I have these ranges, then I'm pretty I'm good. I'm pretty good yeah. at getting in. Now it is really like a lottery. So, but, but some of the state, uh, state universities are still like that, and but I guess they're they're like that on GPA though. If you're in the top seven percent of your school, then you get automatic admission right. into UT Austin or something like that, it. right? So it's not SAT based per se. No, and we've known that it's not predictive since I mean Tony Carnavale was I, doing research on this right. uh, three decades yeah. ago. Yeah, it goes back to that. So the other thing that Josh talked about, of course, was his uh, research on the uh, online master's uh, degree in computer science at uh, at Georgia Tech, and and just found it fascinating this idea that it it really has first of all, created a whole new market uh, for students. And, you know, and, and we've been talking a lot on segmenting the student market in new ways. And, and this is a growth area for colleges, universities. Let's stop thinking of students as this monolithic, uh, monolithic thing. But given your work on online education, what did you find uh, interesting and, and replicable about uh, what other universities could do? Well, uh, I'll, I'll say I love that it validated something that uh, Gunnar Councilman and I wrote a piece uh, when Georgia Tech in- initially announced that program. We said, finally, someone has crossed the Rubicon. We see the first actually disruptive program, right? Because most of these programs don't actually class classify as disruptive because they're not lowering the price point in the way that you would hope. And, and here was, it was, you know, a, a order of magnitude less uh, than, than the uh, master's program on the Georgia Tech campus. And so what then I then loved was he went out and actually looked at who's taking it. And indeed, they are non-consumers. Like right. literally, they would not enroll in a program were it not for this. And so it's like textbook um, what they're doing. And so I, I, I thought it was, besides validating, I thought it was fascinating. Um, but I also took uh, uh, two other pieces from it. One, uh, the amount of money that they had to put in to start this program, $4 million, that's a lot more than these, uh, than these OPM-led programs are putting into their programs. Georgia Tech really did this thoughtfully uh, to build a sterling program, I think. And, and I think he's right. That's not something that can just be easily replicated. Uh, and then the second thing I, I thought was, gosh, what a shame that, you know, we should be building more high quality programs like this because, and this goes to the SAT question as well as this, and, and, and maybe this is a good place to end with some thoughts on this question, is the equity one. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, in the SAT, you know, it it's, seems to be conferring an advantage on upper income students. Uh, here, this seems to be conferring an advantage for certain institutions that are well endowed, and and I suspect, or therefore, means that uh, a lot of these programs are going to be taken advantage of by people that already have degrees and maybe not out of the uh, marketplace unless it's really thoughtfully designed. Just curious and reflections a, on that, and that's very true in the SAT, right? The students who take it more often and who are ended up being coached, or people who have, you know, access to that uh, as that information. And as Josh said, the more often you take this test, the more often you know how it works, and 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 you end up doing uh, you're doing better. And and we know all the correlation research on the SAT shows, you know, higher scores are really highly correlated with 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 income level. And 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 Michael, I think this is really kind of the 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 big 
issue, the big problem facing education in general in this in this generation uh, is equity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I see this more and more. I was here in Boston uh, today before we recorded visiting some of the students that I'm profiling as part of this book. And, and you see kind of the unevenness of the high school experience. Um, you see this when I'm sitting in reading applications and you have students who go to schools that offer 50 APs and students who go to school offer one AP or two mm-hmm. APs. You see counselor recommendations where the counselor has, you know, 30 students. And then you see counselor recommendations when they have 500 500, students, right? Um, uh, And you just know kind of the advice they're, you know, and you talk to students about where they're getting advice from, uh, you know, whose parents, you know, went to college and have been talking about college since day one. And then students whose parents, you know, uh, didn't go to college, right? And as many of these students tell me, like, well, I can't go home and talk to mom and dad about this because they have no idea, right? And so uh, I I just think that, um, you know, there's always been this growing divide, but we know the demographics uh, are equaling this huge surge of students coming down the pipeline who are of a uh, of that lower uh, uh, econ- socioeconomic status. And and it, it, I just still don't think that higher education or education in general has adequately addressed this. Yeah. And, you know, it, it points to something else, which he was talking about his future directions for research and saying uh, that he wants to dig in the actual ROI uh, from these programs and micro-credentials and the like. And oh my goodness, I can't, you know, I'm not sure it would solve that problem today of the inequity, but I cannot believe we don't have the quality assurance mechanisms that are just out there connecting these databases of work, uh, salary, and education to answer these questions uh, uh, very cleanly. We just need a, we need a more scalable quality assurance uh, system in place so he doesn't have to sit there doing crazy research uh, uh, to, uh, to, to answer what should be very basic questions that every student ought to have access to. Yeah, and I just think it's great to have Josh on with us. I, I, as I said, we said at the end, he's kind of part of this new generation of, of researchers who are not only eco- uh, higher education researchers who are not only economists, but also really public facing um, as a journalist and as a writer. I, I just love following people like that who really make uh, their research much more accessible to the general public and, and really urge others to to follow him and, and other researchers as well. So really thanks to Josh for joining us on today's episode and, and sharing his thoughts. And, and thanks to all of you for tuning in and be sure to rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jeff Salingo. Mm-hmm.